1: and this, this is how we win. This
0: is Greg Oliar, the author of Dirty Rubles, and you're listening to Muller She
1: Wrote.
4: Hello and welcome to Mueller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G., and we have a quick and dirty show for you today, including a story from Jordan Coburn about what Michael Cohen has been up to. Uh, I will have an interview later on with Ellie Honig about the White House blocking Dr. Fauci from testifying before the House Appropriations Committee and what that has to do with the McGann mueller obstruction of justice uh, House Judiciary subpoena that is now Uh, looking like it might go to the Supreme Court, uh, or no, it's already in the Supreme Court. And then, of course, we have all the headlines that fell under the COVID radar uh, for you. I'm flying solo today under lockdown, and I have a lot of news to tell you about. But first, uh, let's get to some corrections.
3: It's a
0: mistake.
4: It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. Oh, I made a mistake. (laughs) All right. So let's see here. I've got a correction here that says, first of all, I adore all of you and thank you so much for bringing levity and truth to the news. This is less a correction and more of a yes and in response to the conversation you had in shouty word salad uh, way back on December 18th, 2019. Uh, This person is still catching up on episodes. You had a conversation about homeless shelters, and Jordan especially was wondering why there are so many people who do not utilize homeless shelters. As someone who does trauma work and works with many marginalized communities, I thought I could add some information to your conversation. There are a ton of reasons why uh, why not everyone uses homeless shelters or homeless services, including house rules. Some shelters have rules for staying at them that not everyone can meet, as A.G. mentioned, like being sober or going through their specific program for housing. Or, for example, my local shelter requires you to go to the police headquarters every day and get a night pass before you're allowed to access the shelter. Also, there's overcrowding. Many shelters, especially in urban areas, are full. Uh, Qualifying as homeless can be an issue. Um, Some homeless services have very stringent rules for qualifying. For example, my local homelessness task force requires you to be living on the street for a year to qualify as homeless. And then, of course, priorities versus compliance, since homeless folks have different personal priorities than homeless service professionals. For example, many trans folks refuse to focus on food, shelter, or anything else until they gain access to hormone replacement therapy and health care. But many homeless services professionals are trained to expect unhoused folks to comply with their order for accomplishing things. Uh, And then there's work requirements. Some homeless shelter services also have work requirements. Makes me want to pull my hair out. And they require the person to be applying for jobs uh, if they are unemployed, without recognition that many unhoused folks are disabled or require other services to be able to work. Of course, there are many additional barriers to accessing shelters, housing, or homeless services, but I'm sure you get the idea here. Basically, homelessness service tends to be very um, paternalistic instead of empowerment-based, and the results... And this results in many downstream challenges to addressing uh, the needs of the unhoused. Best, Sky Cantola, communications director. uh, And thank you very much for sending that correction or a yes and. And then from Chris, hello, ladies. Just want to let you know the Daily Beans is still the only essential daily podcast to listen to to keep up with the most batshit of timelines. (laughs) Truly, you are essential workers. That said, I got tripped up. At the mention of David Faradhold winning the Pulitzer Prize Wednesday, you were right, he won it for exposing Trump Foundation scandal, but he won it in 2017. The 2020 Pulitzer Prizes, which should have been announced last week, were instead delayed until May May the 4th, uh, due to COVID-19. So what triggered his uh or what what triggered his orange fuckitude on the Pulitzer Nobel prizes? Who knows? Maybe he's now snorting bleach cleansers or getting a UV enema. It's Trump. Corrections may be your favorite part of the show, but mine is everything altogether, especially when all three of you can talk back and forth together. I miss that. Nature is returning to the cities, and laughter is the best medicine. Be well, stay safe, and keep up the awesome work. Thank you, Chris. From Bill, the best of my, to the best of my knowledge, Trump hasn't defunded the World Health Organization because he actually can't. The U.S. contribution has already been made for 2020, and the House would have to sign off on any future uh, defunding. Yeah, Bill, I thought we mentioned that. I thought we went over that this is part of the Impoundment Control Act. Same thing that the GAO found wrong with the uh, holding up of the Ukraine aid. Um, You are correct, Bill. That is true. He has not defunded it yet, but he has announced his intentions to do so. Um, I think of the 120 million... Uh, appropriated uh, 60 million has gone their way and he's trying to hold back the other 60 million of course that is probably against the law i'm sure we'll get some sort of a memo from the government accountability office which resides in the legislative branch not the executive branch so trump doesn't have as much of a reach to to shut them up uh, i'm sure we'll get a memo saying that that does in fact violate the impoundment control act so thank you for that and from mark owens uh, expert armchair legal analyst Analysis always appreciated. On Jordan's segment on Mueller, she wrote on April 26th about the NRA. She lamented the lack of alternatives. While the NRA certainly has a large membership, they're not the only gun rights organization. Look into Pink Pistols and the Huey P. Newton Gun Club organizations. I would even add Ducks Unlimited to disgusted NRA members. Uh, I really appreciate your guests. You're able to field a deep bench of eloquent experts. Thank you. I don't know how we do it either. From Ezra. You are also funny. I'm a daily listener. AG always mentions active measures on Netflix. Finally went to go watch it, but it's no longer on Netflix. I found it on Hulu. I thought it would be helpful if someone else wanted to watch. Love you all. Thank you for letting us know. And from Celestia Ward, love you, ladies. You make my day start with a dose of news and smart commentary. Helps so much. AG expressed worry that 30 New Yorkers have gone to the hospital with issues relating to ingesting bleach. I can't find the news that anyone has done this. The 30 number might have been from a widely circulated story that there was a spike in calls to the NYC Poison Control Center, but compared to numbers last year on the same day, which had 13 calls. But such an increase had been happening for a while because of increased disinfectant use. Again, I have the balls to correct you on this because you guys are so good about getting things right and not being jerks about it. Uh, And the really good news is that Trump's ridiculous statements haven't seemed to endanger anyone except for maybe children or the mentally incapacitated who should be kept from poisons in the first place anyway. Thanks for a great show. Uh, Celestia. thank you for that correction. I I had read it uh, in passing, and I must have confused it. So thank you for letting me know. All right. Those are corrections. If you have any for us, please head to MullerSheWrote.com, click on Contact, select Corrections from the drop-down menu, and build us a compliment sandwich. We'll get it right eventually, we like to say. And now it is time for the headlines. So let's jump in with just the facts. All right, the big news this week, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has denied a stay requested by the Trump administration in the Mueller grand jury material case and has given the Trump administration only until the Department of Justice only until May 11th to seek a stay from the Supreme Court. If they fail to do so, or if the Supreme Court denies the stay, the Department of Justice will be forced to hand over the grand jury materials to the House Judiciary who demanded it. Last July 27th, we were live on stage in Chicago with Renato Mariotti. I'll never forget it. Uh, they they submitted, uh, Jerry Nadler submitted that request demand on July 27th under its Article One powers of impeachment. That is when I felt that the impeachment inquiry actually opened because Article One impeachment inquiry was invoked in the demand for the grand jury materials by Nadler and the House Judiciary Committee on July 27th, although it wasn't until September when Nancy Pelosi announced official uh, impeachment inquiry uh, looking into the Ukraine affair. Um, Given the history of the Supreme Court here and motions for stays from this administration, I think that the Supreme Court will grant a stay. Uh, But I don't want you to think that that means the court is bought and paid for. Yet, at least. We haven't had any of these big five cases decided in the Supreme Court, but I would put beans on them granting this stay. They seem to be erring on the side of uh, caution and conservatism. Uh, in these cases, because this is the president of the United States, I'll talk to uh, to Ellie Honig a little bit about that as well later on in the show. Um, but you know, as we you know, I'm if you've been listening, you know what the Mueller grand jury materials means. It's every piece of documentary evidence that came out of the Mueller investigation, millions and millions of documents, terabytes of data, and this is the equivalent of the Jaworski roadmap that was sent from. Um, the, you know, Jaworski, the special counsel, the independent counsel looking into Watergate to the House of Representatives then. And that is what gave them the roadmap to impeachment. There were actually accusations of crimes uh, committed by Nixon in that document, which is what caused him to resign and what caused Republicans in the Senate to say, and the House to say, we can't support you, bro. There's crimes uh, found by the grand jury that you would have been indicted for. Uh, And so that was sent over. Now, we didn't see the Jaworski roadmap until a couple of years ago. That's how sacrosanct the grand jury secrecy rules are. It had been almost 40 years, um, and we hadn't seen the materials, the Jaworski materials. And now we've got the Mueller grand jury materials about to make their way to the House. I do believe eventually they they will get there. Uh, I think that even if SCOTUS grants the stay, and here's this case on the merits, that they will... um, uh, say that the Department of Justice has to hand over the the Mueller materials. Uh, If it happens after the election, an argument could be that this is no longer needed for impeachment. Um, And so that might be a, a bit of a roadblock, and then we won't get it until 40 years from now. But honestly, I don't know. I just hope they figure out a way to keep my head alive so I can be there for when that news drops. And From the Washington Post, the Secret Service paid for a room at the Trump Hotel in downtown D.C. for 137 consecutive nights in 2017 to the tune of almost $33,000. And that was so it could protect Treasury Secretary Steve while he lived in one of the luxury hotel suites that's $8,300 a night next door to this room. This is according to federal documents and people, three people familiar with this deal. Uh, Steve lived in the luxury suite for several months before moving to D.C. and buying a house there. Uh, Mnuchin paid for his own room, according to the Treasury Department. Do I believe them? No. But in any case, uh, the Secret Service rented out the room next door at the taxpayer's expense. Uh, Let's see, 137 nights at $8,300. Let me get out my uh trusty... TI Texas Instruments calculator here that I keep at the desk for these types of calculations 137 and 8300 that's 1.14 million dollars to Trump from Steve and 33,000 from the taxpayers uh and again according to federal documents uh Steve lived in this luxury suite like I said before he bought a 12 point something million dollar mansion um, he, let's see here, $12.6 million uh, in D.C. in February. Totally a man of the people. Anyway, the uh, Trump Hotel charged the max rate for the Secret Service allowed for federal agencies, which was 242 per night, which isn't unusual to charge the max rate. Uh, but Steve's decision to stay at the hotel and the secret service set up two separate revenue streams for trump one from steve to the tune of 1.14 million provided he paid the full eighty three hundred dollars we still don't know that per night and one from mr and mrs john q taxpayer that's us uh the constitution bars the president from taking payments from the federal government uh but trump has argued that this provision was not meant for him (laughs) i don't know who it's meant for if not you Uh, And this very specific scenario, that is domestic emoluments, the administration and the Treasury continue to block reporting on accounting of how much federal agencies have paid to Trump's companies since the inauguration. And Steve, as we know uh, from uh, past reporting here on this show, has asked to delay Secret Service accounting until after the election. Why? Gosh, I, I can't imagine. But like I said, he moved out of the Trump Hotel in February when he bought his $13 million mansion and uh, spent your tax dollars to line the pockets of the president by having a Secret Service live next door. On any other planet, this would be a massive scandal. But as Maddow says, we're on planet one right now, and this is just going right under the radar. And in other news, Mitch McConnell wants to recall the Senate, despite there being a massive pandemic outbreak, and despite not having adequate testing, according to Politico. And he wants to do this, not to work on stimulus or a coronavirus response, but to appoint conservative judges, probably before Trump loses his ass in November. He wants to pack the courts as much as he can before that fateful election. So, wonderful, putting our uh, elected officials, uh, lawmakers' lives at risk to appoint judges. But he wouldn't give Merrick Garland a meeting. Interesting. Interesting. And now, let's get an update on Michael Cohen from Jordan Coburn for Hot Notes. Awesome. Hot Notes.
2: Hello, welcome to Jordan's Hot Notes. Uh, I got a quick one for you today, very quick. So I'm just going to jump right into it. This one's about our our buddy, Michael Cohen. Uh, Michael Cohen was supposed to be released from prison on Friday. Uh, That's because of the increased danger to inmates that was assessed in many of the um, prisons. Uh, This is obviously because of COVID-19. And he's not going to actually get out, though. He's not uh, seeing that release. And there's some interesting events that unfolded immediately following that announcement that he wasn't going to be released. But... Cohn's lawyer Roger Adler, he told CNBC about this. I am disappointed that Michael was not released after the 14-day quarantine period. That's what the understanding was that he was going to he was going to quarantine for those 2 weeks. He did that and then he was going to serve out the rest of his time confined at home. Uh, but now it seems like he's going to be eligible for release at the end of May. And, uh, so the, the weird kind of thing that happened surrounding that announcement, uh, the, the day, the, the, okay, so the delay announcement happened a day after Charles, after, not before, my bad, a day after Charles Harder, who's a lawyer for the Trump organization, sent Cohen a letter Uh, as a warning, saying that when he gets out, he would be at legal risk if he wrote the book that it has been rumored that he's going to write about his time working for Trump. Uh, Harder noted that Cohen had signed an NDA and that he couldn't reveal any info about Trump, his family, or his businesses. That's according to ABC News. Uh, Cohen, as we know, has been working on a huge, you know, tell-all book like all these people are, are doing right now and ideally it was going to be released before the November election. So that'll just be very interesting to see what happens. I mean he can be he's still be working on the book currently while he's in prison. I'm sure he's already doing that. So I don't know how much I imagine all the other people who have written tell all books also had some sort of like agreement signed where they weren't supposed to talk about things. Maybe not though because they were functioning in the capacity of government officials versus essentially like a, you know, privately hired attorney for trump so i can't wait to see how that all unfolds i hope that we get to uh we get to hear everything but we'll see um and that's it that's all i got for the hot note today folks super short hope everyone is doing great and having a good start to their week and holding up uh holding up okay i will talk to you all next week on Mueller, she wrote,
4: goodbye. All right. Thanks, Jordan, for that update. And finally, the White House is blocking Dr. Fauci from testifying, and the McGann decision could impact a coronavirus reckoning. Let's listen to a discussion I had today with an expert about the implications. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me for the interview is CNN legal analyst and former state and federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig. Ellie, thanks for agreeing to speak with me today.
3: Thank you for having me. I think like probably a lot of listeners, I have a lot of time on my hands, so more than happy to have something to do.
4: <laughs> awesome. And I, I, know, I know you're outside right now, and I can hear the birds chirping, and I absolutely love it.
3: I am enjoy the Jersey nature that I'm surrounded by. <laughs>
4: Jersey nature. Got it. Uh, I guess you don't live near any petrochemical refineries or anything like that.
3: So. Not within the, the five-mile radius, I can say that. I don't know beyond that.
4: <laughs> the garden state is alive and well. Um, how are you? How are you holding up during this? Uh, this I'm doing whole...
3: really, really, all things considered very well. I mean, most importantly, healthy and happy and able to work. And uh, it's just so many people are going through so many uh, worse things that I will be the absolute last person to complain about any of this.
4: And are you, are you locked down with some family or?
3: Yeah, I have a 14 and a 12 year old kid, uh, a son and a daughter. So they are doing the homeschooling thing. Luckily, this is a big factor how old your kids are my kids are old enough they don't need me but people with eight and six and seven year olds gosh they got they have to be with them all day and walk them through their second grade curriculum that is tough I don't have to deal with that thankfully
4: yeah I only have cats and a dog so I, <laughs> homeschooling is very different for me um yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, uh, the reason I wanted to bring you on is because of some stuff that you tweeted out last week. I think we learned Friday that the White House has decided to block uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci from testifying about the COVID response to a House committee. Can you tell us a little bit about that committee
3: and, and the request? So, this is the House Appropriations Committee, which basically holds the purse strings. They decide where money gets spent. And so, their jurisdiction is really almost as broad as whatever they want to ask about. It's kind of like a parent who says, look, I pay your bills. I can ask you whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And so appropriations committee typically has very broad sort of subject matter jurisdiction. So in in that sense, I think um, there's nothing surprising about this. And and it's a it's a certainty, a mathematical certainty that Congress will at some point dig deep into the administration's coronavirus uh, efforts. I think there's an argument to be made that this is maybe a bit early to be asking Dr. Fauci for his testimony. I mean, we're still right in the middle of this, and I think there's a fair argument. It's not a legal argument. It's just a, an overall argument of, look, when the dust settles, that's the time to do this. But I guess the counter-argument would be, if there's mishandling going on now, we need to know about it. We, Congress, and we, the American public, need to know about it now when we still have the opportunity to do something about it.
4: Yeah, and there's another argument too because I think we just learned that Fauci is being allowed to answer questions in the Senate uh, in two weeks, and and since the House is democratically controlled, the Senate is controlled by Republicans. Does this smell political at all to you? I mean, I know we can only speculate.
3: Hundred percent. I mean, that's a huge difference, and we, and we saw it during impeachment. The, the difference between being questioned in a Democratic-controlled House versus being controlled in a Republican. Uh, a question in a Republican-controlled Senate is night and day. And whichever party's in the majority makes all the rules and controls the floor and really has its run of the show. And so I think it's absolutely a political calculation that we're fine with him testifying in the Republican-controlled Senate, uh, but not in the Democratic-controlled House. And one thing I have to point out, this may be a, cons- a coincidence, I don't know, but May 12th is the date when Fauci is supposed to testify in the Senate. Also happens to be the day the Trump tax returns case is getting argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, we'll see where the attention goes. But I suspect if Fauci's testifying, that will get all of the attention.
4: Uh, yeah, 100 percent. I mean, when uh, before when these arguments were scheduled for March 31st, that is when they magically said that Bill Barr could testify uh, to, to Congress. So it's <laughs> they have a, a knack for scheduling things on oral arguments. SCOTUS case tax <laughs> Trump Day.
3: That's a good point. Yeah.
4: Um, and, of course, also, it just occurred to me uh, as you were speaking there, the Appropriations Committee um, during impeachment. We, we, you remember the Government Accountability Office, which is a legislative body, uh, had put out a memo saying, hey, we you know what? The, the withholding of Ukraine aid is against the law. It's against the Impoundment Control Act. Uh, and, of course, the Empowerment Control Act is directly tied to the Appropriations Committee because funding appropriated by Congress may not be blocked by the executive branch. And so maybe Trump just has a, you know, something up his craw with the Appropriations Committee.
3: It could be. It could be. And, and the question now really is, is the Appropriations Committee, are the House Democrats going to fight back? Are they going to push for Fauci are they just going to sort of sit back and take it as they've shown a bit of a tendency to do in The Mueller case and in impeachment.
4: Yeah, although I will say given the fact that the election is what, uh, six months away, um, and we're in the middle of the pandemic, it might not be politically, optically wise to do a to do a, you know, a a commission 9-11 commission style investigation, although that's not what I think this I don't think that's what this was. Um, But it might it just might not be prudent at this juncture, as George would say.
3: I agree. I, I think we eventually will see a 9-11 Commission-like investigation of this, but I think like the 9-11 Commission, that will happen well after the fact. I think the 9-11 Commission report came out uh, you know, a good amount of time after 9-11. Um, but what I think, if, I think the House's argument here would be, we want to monitor what's happening at, to some extent in real time. Um, obviously, members of the House can't be inside the important rooms of the White House, but they can still conduct oversight. And I think they might say, it's important that we do this while there's still something that can be done. If there's, This is not so much about assigning blame and uh, credit as it is about ensuring that this is being handled well. And so that's why we need to do it now. I think that's the argument they would make. And I think the argument we are hearing from the executive branch in the White House is it's a, it's a sideshow. It's a distraction. It's premature. We need Dr. Fauci to be focused on his day-to-day job. And he shouldn't be wasting time testifying in Congress right now.
4: Yeah, and and Mueller said that on multiple occasions uh, in his testimony and in his report, you know, when when saying if you can't indict the president, why'd you investigate? And he's like, well, the special counsel is given the the duty to do so while memories are fresh and while evidence is still available, so it makes sense. And then, of course, g- uh, you know, with the House Democrats given Trump's war against our inspectors general, uh, as of late, I can see why they would want to take this up legislatively. But sure. And speaking of future potential 9-11 Commission-style investigations into into the coronavirus response. You had mentioned that there's currently a case in the Supreme... I think it's at the Supreme Court level now, uh, or at least it's been petitioned to be by the Trump administration about the subpoena of former White House counsel Don McGahn way back from July 27th of last year, filed under Article 1 powers uh, of impeachment, to get that, uh, you know, to get his testimony on whether or not Trump obstructed justice in the Mueller investigation. And while that really has nothing to do with COVID-19, you uh, have said it, it does actually matter what that decision is and when it happens in the investigation into the COVID response. Can you explain a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. So how, how does Don McGahn relate to COVID response? <laughs> and, and, and the answer is that Don McGahn case is going to decide whether Congress has a truly enforceable subpoena power over the executive branch. Now, just as a quick refresher, so after the Mueller report came out, House Democrats subpoenaed McGahn, and the White House said, no, he's not going to testify. Then, this is the one and only case where House Democrats actually went to court and said, courts, we need you to order them to let him testify. We need you to back our subpoena with legal force. And, that argument succeeded at the district court level, the trial court level. The judge came down with a very strongly written opinion. She said, he has to testify. This is not what separation of powers is about. And people may remember the the line from that judge where she, she said, presidents are not kings. Then the case went to the court of appeals in DC. The court of appeals came out the other way. They actually bailed out. They said, this is not for us to rule on. This is a political dispute between Congress and the white house. The courts cannot get involved. Now, that's a hugely problematic ruling because it essentially means Congress has no meaningful way to enforce its subpoenas against the executive branch. But after that opinion came out, the Court of Appeals granted rehearing, which is very rarely done. It's by what's called en banc, meaning all of the available judges. Usually the first ruling was three judges on a panel. And that argument just happened last week. So we're going to get a new ruling out of the D.C. Court of Appeals. And I think that ruling will be in favor of the House, I think the the Court of Appeals will say, yes, we can enforce a, a congressional subpoena on the executive branch. And we do. And then I think whichever side loses is going to try to get the case up to the Supreme Court. We don't know if the Supreme Court will take it. But ultimately, whichever way this case comes out will dictate whether the House has real enforceable subpoena power over the executive branch, whether it's Don McGahn, whether it's a witness in impeachment whether it's Dr. Fauci or any other witness relating to coronavirus or anything else that may come up.
4: Yeah. And I think that uh, I listened to those arguments, too, just recently um, for the on banc hearing. And I'm with you. I think it's 100 percent going to come down in favor uh, of uh, Nadler, the House Judiciary, um, because one of the main arguments that the, the Trump administration is making in other court cases is, the only remedy for for going after a president is impeachment. And even Rao, Judge Rao said that in her dissent um, of the of the original ruling and not the original ruling, but the appellate court ruling. And and that's a she's a, a Trump appointee, although it shouldn't matter who appoints who, but it's obvious in this case. Um and so what the, one of the judges asked uh, Muban, who I believe was counsel for the Department of Justice, hey, so impeachment is it, right? Yes, impeachment is the only remedy. Well, how do you expect the Congress to be able to investigate an, an impeachment if they don't have subpoena power, if they can't enforce their subpoena power? So I, I, it, it seemed like it was going to be clear what that ruling is. And so it'll be interesting to see. But the timeline on this
3: is pretty long. The decision could come out in October. It, yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, th- there's definitely an irony in the fact that if you remember when the president was impeached, Article 2 of the impeachment was obstruction of Congress because mm-hmm. the president, the executive branch, had, had ignored all of Adam Schiff's subpoenas. And the Republicans said in defense of that, you can't just impeach us. You never even went to court to try to enforce your subpoenas. And now they're arguing in court what? Oh, you can't come to court to enforce your subpoenas. So it's very much of a catch-22 if if, <laughs> if the Trump people... Have their way, but yeah, the timeline here has been really long, and 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 this I think is largely on the Democrats because the Mueller report came out in April. They didn't file, they didn't go to court to try to enforce the subpoena on McGahn for four months. It took them four months to get to court until August. They didn't demand expedited ruling or anything like that. The original ruling, I think, came out in November or December. I mean, litigation is slow, but it doesn't have to be this slow. What what the House Democrats should have done was subpoenaed McGann immediately, given him a week or two weeks if, to comply or not comply, and then gone. There's no reason they they, didn't, they couldn't have been in court in May, mm-hmm. three months, three and a half months earlier than they were, and demand expedited ruling. I mean, it, it, it's not hard to explain to a judge. This is very, very important and time-sensitive. So I, I blame the Democrats for... for not pushing this with the urgency that they needed to.
4: Yeah, I mean in Watergate they got the tapes in 4 months.
3: Oh sure. I mean it, there were there were several uh court disputes in Watergate that were given expedited rulings and cases were heard and decided within days and weeks. So look courts can courts of course are overburdened and they have too many cases on the docket but courts control their own dockets and they can move as fast as they need to. If it's an emergency, courts can get things done really, really quick. They're all just human beings. They know how to prioritize. So this notion that litigation must take an excruciating amount of time is really not accurate if it's the right issue and if the parties are pushing it.
4: Do you think um, we'll get in one of the on banc decision maybe Monday or I think they come out Mondays, don't they?
3: I don't know exactly what day of the week they come out. I think this Monday would be a little quick. I mean, the oral argument was just on this past Tuesday. That would be six days. Hmm. Um, But I think I think they probably know where they're going. I mean, there's a reason they granted on Bonk Review. That is, like I said, that is extraordinarily rare to see a court of appeals say, basically, we're going to reconsider a subgroup of us Um, that usually suggests that the whole Court of Appeals strongly disagrees and wants to come out the other way. So I suspect they largely already know where they're going and probably have most of their opinions already written. So yeah, I think we'll get a a ruling there fairly quickly. And I hope the Court of Appeals is sort of surveying the broader landscape and saying this case needs to move because this is going to determine things like can somebody, can the Congress subpoena somebody like Dr. Fauci? Um, And the case is going to have, you know, someone, like we said, someone, the loser is going to try to get this to the Supreme Court Without question. And if the Supreme Court takes it, then, of course, they'll have the final say and that'll take many more months. But if not, then whatever we hear from the the Circuit uh, Court of Appeals in D.C., that'll be it. That'll be the ruling.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of rare things happening in the courts these days. I've noticed uh, unusual large amounts of stay granting happening. Um, <laughs> right, right. Although to pivot a little bit in the Mueller grand jury material case, I know that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals just said, no, no stay from us. You have 11 days. You only have till May 11th to, to to get a stay from the Supreme Court. Um, and we'll, we'll see how. It's a mini how- stay. It's a tiny stay, mini stay. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll see. We'll see how that goes down. Um,
3: yeah. Funny how parties want more stays when November starts to loom on the calendar. Oh, if we could just push it off. Yeah. But
4: they've been giving, they've been granted every single of the, you know, the big five cases, you know, Deutsche Bank, Mazars, the other Mazars, uh, McGann and, and this case, the Mueller grand jury material case, they've granted to stay in every instance.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, court, courts do typically grant stays, short stays to allow the parties an opportunity to appeal. Um, And everyone's appealing everything all the way as high as they can go. So uh, it'll be an interesting race against the clock.
4: Yeah, if they don't grant the stay, if Supreme Court doesn't grant the stay in the in the Mueller grand jury material case, that'll be the first time, and and then they'll be forced to hand it over. It'll be I right. I don't. I think they'll grant the stay. I feel like the Supreme Court here and the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals are going out of their way to err on the side of caution, uh, t- to ensure that everybody gets their full ass due process because this is the president of the United States and. Yep. So I, I imagine they'll grant that stay, but God, it would—I'd have a nice party if they didn't.
3: Yeah, I mean, courts are inherently conservative, and I don't, I don't mean ideologically. I mean, lowercase C. They, 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 they—they they always want to make sure everyone gets—and and they should be. This is their role. Everyone gets a chance to argue and be heard, and appeal and reappeal and all that. So courts are rarely going to say just. No, too bad. You're out of luck. Do this now. I don't even care if you don't have time to appeal up the line. But yeah, they do start to pile up at a certain point. Great. All these cases, <laughs> right? No, nope. nope, sorry. Yep. You have till Hand tomorrow.
4: You have till yep. tomorrow, <laughs> and I don't. I don't care, and I don't like your face. Yeah. <laughs> that'd,
3: that'd well, listen. It. When I was a prosecutor, we used to. We didn't really ask for extra time. Our, our our command was to always be ready at all times. But sometimes you'd see a defense lawyer ask to postpone a trial or to put things off, and judges would just go no be here, we're doing this, too bad. That was always kind of fun when that happened.
4: I really liked that when that happened with the Bijan Rafikian, Bijan Kian trial, that was somebody that Flynn was supposed to Testify uh, as a cooperating witness, but became a co- uh, an indicted co-conspirator, and and they're like, hey, my uh, my daughter's getting married in in the fall, and and the judge is like, cool, we'll do
3: the we'll do the trial in July then, bye. Yeah, well, it's funny actually. Speaking of the McGann case, I was at the uh, district court argument in Washington D.C. It was on Halloween, I remember, um, and I was there for CNN covering it, and the judge said a very tight briefing schedule, and um. But one of the parties objected because it went through Thanksgiving and the party said, well, judge, can we push it back a little bit because it's Thanksgiving? And the judges said, what, are you kidding me? I know it's Thanksgiving. Like, take a few hours out and be with your family. But this is important. you got to get this moving. It's kind of an embarrassing moment for the for the attorney there.
4: <laughs> uh, I live for those tiny moments. I really do. All <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. CNN an legal analyst, former state and federal prosecutor covering both fields there, uh, Ellie Honig. Ellie, Ellie, thanks for joining me.
3: Anytime. Thanks for having me.
4: Take care. All right, everybody, that is our show today. Uh, that is Muller She Wrote. I appreciate all of you emailing in your corrections from our website. Again, that's wrotecom And thank you to everyone who's a patron who turned up at Saturday's Tiki Cocktail Q&A Hangout Sweet Sweet Hangs. That was so much fun. Uh, I loved wearing my tiki stuff. I haven't in a while, and since August, since they've canceled Tiki Oasis, and I didn't get my tiki fix, uh, I really appreciate you giving me the uh, the space to do that. Uh, and everyone's pictures are awesome. Um, everyone, you can tag hashtag uh, Daily Beans Happy Hour with photos from from your tiki cocktail uh experience as well um we've got so many great photos so many great people thanks to the hundreds of people who came on uh and listened um we're gonna see if we can get some guests this coming week so you definitely want to check that out if you're not a patron go to patreon.com slash muller she wrote you can sign up to be one for three bucks a month you get to be the patron for this show and for the daily beans and so it's it's well worth it and you're going to help support us through this crisis uh thank you very much again everyone please take care of yourselves take care of each other I love you all this has been AG and this is Muller she wrote Muller she wrote is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn with engineering and editing by Mackenzie Mazel and Starburns Industries Our marketing manager, production and social media direction is by Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder, and our knowledgeable listeners. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios, and our website is mullershewrote.com.